0: Welcome to the podcast edition of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I'm your host Pat Braden, broadcasting to you over the virtual airwaves from the Love Shack Studio here in the heart of Old Town Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Now I'm a bass player, Chapman stick player, singer-songwriter, and I've been playing music throughout the North since about 1977. As a young musician. I was caught up in the explosion of popular music in the world through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. As I got older, I thought there must have been the same thing happening up here, just in a different place and on a different scale. So in 2003, I started to interview the older players who taught me most of what I know today, and many more musicians that I'd only ever heard of. My intention was to have an accessible, and free place where anyone could go to learn about these players and the musical times and the lives that they lived. Over the years, I've collected 30 plus interviews and created an archival website at www.musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. Some of these interviews are quite long, so I wanted to bring the core of their stories to a more accessible format. So I created this series of podcasts, to continue the celebration of the musical lives of these Northern musicians who performed in Northern Canada from the 1950s through to the mid-1970s. Thanks for tuning in. Please send any questions and comments to me through this website. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. Somewhere, back in a faded memory, I am sitting in the St. Pat's School gymnasium, on those really uncomfortable metal stacking chairs, and watching the community theatre production of Fiddler on the Roof. I wish I could remember more detail other than flashes of colourful costumes and those unforgettable melodies from the score, but my young 8 or 10 year old brain could only take in so much. A few years later, I was old enough to realize that this was only one of many community theatre productions pulled together by a handful of Yellowknife thespians to keep the town entertained and to keep their own acting, singing, and playing skills from atrophying. There were many professionals in town that needed an outlet for their dramatical and musical talents. Some of them were highly recognized in their respective artistic fields in the South before they migrated North. As a result, The quality of talent and production was at an elevated level for such a small town. Alex Charniky was the Tour de Force, the visionary of this golden era of community theatre. He found a group of like-minded artistic souls and gathered them together around the idea of putting on a show. After the curtains closed, the hundreds of uncomfortable metal chairs were stacked and the concert hall returned to a gymnasium. Plans were already afoot for the next production. Through all of these years, Alex taught full-time, raised a family, directed about 56 community theatre productions, and along with his musical partner, Wolf Shitlowski, played tenor saxophone with the Alley Cats and Easy Street almost every weekend for 14 years. He wrote children's songs that were played regularly in the early years of Sesame Street and produced a legacy of insightful documentary films about the North in cultural transition. Alex brought equal amounts of energy and passion to each of his creative pursuits. But somehow I missed out on hearing Alex playing his tenor saxophone. I was too busy playing in school ensembles and with our band Friends in the bars. I'm sorry I missed out. Alex's perspective and insights of living in Yellowknife through those years had me laughing one minute and almost in tears the next. Over the years, I learned that he played jazz saxophone in Montreal in the 1960s and I knew I had to get his interview. Alex is a true jazz musician at heart, never losing his passion for the music or the instrument, and in that, he has endeared himself to my own musical heart. Alex Czarniky passed away in January of 2019. I feel very fortunate to have interviewed him in his home on Latham Island in Yellowknife in October of 2006.
1: In the early 60s, I guess that's when it was, We um we had several bands in in Montreal, and that was a time when I I really was taking the saxophone very seriously, and um, I I I studied and I had lessons, and most importantly, I was I was actually trying to develop a sound. At any rate, we had several bands, but then we just happened to have the right mix, and we ended up with a with a seven-piece group in Montreal called the Island City Seven. This band took off. We had a standing contract at one of the most important ski resorts in the Laurentians. We played every weekend, and so we were regulars there for about two years. And all the debutante balls at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel and uh, the Queen Elizabeth Hotel. And we rehearsed a lot. We worked very hard. And it was the, it was the era of the Tijuana Brass and. Stan Getz was hot then. and So it was really an eclectic mix of music from polkas to Latin American to watermelon man kind of rock. And so it had a brassy sound because I also doubled on the trombone. And those were great years. And perhaps the climax of that came when former Prime Minister Trudeau hired our band to accompany him uh, for his Montreal campaign. And that was a wonderful thrill, playing on an open-air limousine bus. And Trudeau's right in front of me, just dancing up a storm. And then we played at Place Des Arts in the in the uh, open area in downtown Montreal. And we spent the whole day. I grew up in Montreal and you know we played music there forever. But that was a time when I, I, I really think I knew how to play. And, you know, so much to learn. And then big decisions, big decisions, Pat, where we we were on the verge of, you know, quitting everything and just doing music full-time. And so, you know what that's all about. So we kept getting these contracts. and But I don't know what happened. Eventually, you know, people started going their own way. Or the guitarist, who was superb, I mean, he was, he was studying to be a neurobiologist. And we all had our own things to pursue. But... Woven into that whole period was always a dream of coming north, and uh, and so I taught in Toronto for a year, in Montreal for a year at a blackboard jungle school, which actually was my turning point to to go into teaching. So I had to go to the University of Toronto for another degree. So I didn't okay. play music in Toronto, and then um, the opportunity to come to Yellow Knight finally arose. I applied to the school board here. And lo and behold, they sent me a letter, and I was in Europe at the time, that you're welcome. So we bought an old Simpson Sears truck for $500 that was painted that oxide red. And it was an old clunker. We filled it with record albums, two saxophones, a couple of sleeping bags, and books, and personal things, little things, and started chugging across. It
0: was about 68, 69? Yeah, 71 by this time. Okay, 71. 71. That was
1: in 1970, 71.
0: What were your impressions of the town right off the bat? We don't well, have to stay there very long.
1: Or, or okay, no, I, I can tell you that. I, I, it's very clear. And it's only because of the, the extremely rough trip up. I mean, with this van blowing up, we were broke. I couldn't, I needed a new engine. And a farmer towed us back into Valley View, spent the night in a, in a garage where I, I, I still hear the air guns running, changing truck tires, and, and we're sleeping in a garage in the back of our Simpson Sears truck. Wondering what that, and school was going to start in three days. And I didn't know how we are going to get there. And the next morning we walked into the cafe and it just filled with truckers. And I says, I'm going to ask one of these guys where they're going. And Carolyn, my wife, was with me. And I spotted one guy that kind of looked like maybe he's the one. So I introduced myself. I, said, I gave him our sob story. He says, I'm going to Hay River. Hop in. So, what an adventure. His name was Earl Gow. I'll never forget him. And he was the nicest man in the world. And we sat in this big 18-wheeler, and the road was dirt all the way. There. And it, was, it had been raining and mud. And he was our introduction to the North. And he gave us a running commentary all the way about the northern lights and the birds and the animals and the uh, the rivers and he was in love with the north and he couldn't take us to Yellowknife because he had a fish load to come back. Then we took a bus from Enterprise to, to, to Yellowknife and as we're driving a bullet f- flew through the windshield of the... Of the bus, did the driver just about freak. There was a stray bullet or something, or and the glass shattered. <gasps> oh my, oh my, oh my, the Wild West. It was what an adventure coming up here. And all we had was a you know a little handbag or knapsack, but they had an apartment for us here, anyway. So, here in an answer to your question, yellow knife. Was to me if you can use an image after all of this and you know like it's a thousand it was a thousand miles through nothing on dirt roads and bullets and dust and mud it was like a Shangri-La underneath some kind of a plastic geodesic dome Mm. to me it was like a unbelievable that something like this could exist which was more or less in the middle of nowhere at the time. Like, I was, I was blown away. But that's only because of the trip. It's, you know, like, at the end of the road, what is there? And suddenly I looked around, my goodness. And, you know, the, the apartment had running water and toilets and, well. And what a change from Montreal and Toronto. I fell in love with it although we were only going to come for two years. Well, here it is. It's 2006. <laughs> but anyway, so my impressions of Yellowknife were were really, um, it was quite awesome. In perspective, you know, of, of what we were doing. And, um, and then, of course, we started settling in and, and getting to work. And, Went back to Valley View to pick up the truck. About a month later, we went out just in two days, and friends came, but new friends, you know, teachers. Mm-hmm. And let's go and got it up here. And my um, saxophone was still there. Beautiful. <laughs> I thought yeah, that's maybe it was the same, still there. <laughs> and um so that's that's that was that was actually both of our our impressions as I remember then I actually wrote a story about that uh, it was sort of like a memoir and um that whole experience of of arriving here and um kind of being in disbelief yeah. so there, it was a okay, positive it was certainly a positive feeling and of course when you, you start uh, meeting all the people here it the warmth and the hospi- hospitality and the the genuine uh, feelings of acceptance and uh, taking you for who you are and uh, all those things. It was uh, it was really special. And I guess that's what keeps... You, you know. you either hated it... I remember people either hated it or they loved it. There were very few that I can think of, if any, that, that just sort of... Well, it's okay. It was either I, I hate it here or I love it. That's what I remember. Mm-hmm. You know, so... So you came up, the, it, was the, it was the Catholic school board that heard? Yeah. yeah and you yeah. were
0: teaching in St. Pat's? That's right. Wilf was was teaching there as well, and he was one of the
1: cornerstones of the musical community at that time, for sure. He was. He knew everybody. Anybody, mm-hmm. who, who, anybody who could play anything, Wilf knew about them. Whether it was some guy playing chopsticks, or <laughs> or, or, a, or a talented, very talented uh, musician of some kind, Wilf. Wolf knew, And Wolf had an absolute love for it. I guess it was that having come from Saskatchewan, and as a matter of fact, a lot of the folks and teachers were, were, were from Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan at that time. And maybe they still are today, I don't know but. And Wolf um, just loved playing polkas and a lot of old-fashioned kind of, kind of songs. And uh he was, I think, uh, a real spirit within the ensemble because i I don't think there was any band after that first band I just described where Wolf wasn't in it. but Wolf was was very much a uh, I don't know, kind of like like a catalyst in all of this because because of his um, demeanor, his enthusiasm. And other things which um, actually got quite humorous <laughs> which I don't want to talk about. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's why we can leave out there.
1: We formed a little group. I don't you know what I don't remember the if you named the names of bars in those days, but what I do remember was we ultimately formed a little trio with myself, uh, Penny Omond, who is now Penny Ballantyne and Wilf Shidlowski.
2: And then at the same time I started playing with um, Alex Czarniecki and uh, Wilf Shidlowski um, in the band that Alex formed. And Alex was my grade nine English teacher. And of course I had Wilf for homeroom, I think, in grade nine. Then that year, Alex arrived with a whole bunch of young teachers, Gary Lair, uh, um, Jerry Saretsky. There was a whole group of them that arrived on Mouse, and they weren't a lot older than we were. You know, this time I was 15 and they were probably in their early 20s. Um, so I was invited to start playing with them. And then that was really different because, of course, Alex came from a jazz background. So we were playing a lot of jazz standards, which I really, really loved. Um, and he was really, really talented musically. And, of course, Wilf had this really solid country and western background. So we were this kind of weird amalgam of... You know, country and western and jazz, and you know, knock three times on the ceiling if you want me, like whatever was playing on the radio.
1: And I think our, our first engagement may have been a New Year's Eve dance at the, what was it called? It was, I don't know if the gallery, or if it was called the gallery then. And so we, we did it. But uh, I also discovered that the the crowd was very forgiving which <laughs> is wonderful and, and you know no one uh, really criticized what you were doing <laughs> They just people just enjoyed having a live band dancing and enjoying and, and and the band being able to play requests as best as we could. We got a lot of work. Um, we were busy every weekend
0: so you're playing in in, in Multiple bands that were
1: more. No, it was band, one band, band but, these, that but that kept like changing. Kept changing, with changing new, right. you know, people would come yep. and go, and now we got to find a bass player, and now we've got to find a guitarist, <clears> and, now find a guitarist <throat> and now we've got to find a drummer. Um, and Wolf would come up with these people. <laughs> or
0: find somebody, yeah. yeah.
1: But the, the ultimate uh, group or groups that eventually this evolved into, and which actually I think were. were we're, we're getting quite good, even despite what I said earlier. But there's uh, a group in the last several years, uh, in the early 80s through to the mid 80s or late 70s, which had a wonderful, absolutely versatile um, accordionist by, by the name of Henry Undheim, who, who was from Norway. And he, he was a worker at a uh, con mine and he played a, a beautiful accordion that was, of course, all electronic, and so it, it, it didn't sound like an umpapa accordion. It truly had a band sound. And he was really good, I thought. He could play anything, and well. And then a, a, one, a really kind of solid, um, stalwart bassist by the name of Lloyd Dahl. I don't know, he just gave me, mesmerized me when he played, because he was a big guy, and he just, had pretty stoic face. But boy, when he played, just loved it. I'll never forget him. So we teamed up with them, and we, I think uh, J.T. was on drums with that group, John Talgen. And Norman Glowich was also involved. I don't know if he was a drummer or or, uh, John Talgen, but there was a period also when Norman Glowich played drums with us. And then um, there was myself, of course, and Wilf. And we had a singer, uh, Huguette Duncan. She had quite a lovely voice. I don't remember Uh, Randy Bennett. Played with him quite a lot. But in that group, uh, a wonderful Danish architect, who I had befriended, uh, joined forces with us. And his name was Hans Barford. And he was good. He he had a stand-up bass, but he also played the electric bass. And so for our purposes, he, he chose the electric bass. But he knew his music, and he, remi- he was actually, he actually was the first person that kind of rekindled what I had started this with, reminded me of how I used to play, and probably still could play if I worked at it back in Montreal. And one of the things that, that I think why we got so many jobs Was that we really played uh, just about anything you wanted. We weren't the best rock band in town, that's for sure, but we did it. But we, you know, we could play polkas and tangos and cha-cha's and old-fashioned chatises, or or we could play swing, Benny Goodman stuff, and it was really quite a a spectrum of music, and people loved that. Saturday nights or Saturday was worse than Friday. But Saturday night in the Old Legion, which was located where the office restaurant is now. So the Old Legion was down there. Well, Saturday night at around 12:30, 1 o'clock, and it happened very regularly. We kind of start pulling back on this on the small stage we had. It's sort of getting a distance between us and the floor because teeth would fly some fight would break out and oh <laughs> some would land on the stage it just happened you know people drink and and um some people have a lot of fun when they drink others can get really nasty yeah. but there there was inevitably some fight in the legion on saturday nights jeez couple of chairs flying here and there so Yellowknife was, was a really colorful, vibrant, fun place to, to be doing, to be working again in music. And you never had to take it as seriously as you, as you did in Montreal, where there was competition exactly. and there was uh, And there was also, you know, a little, uh, people were more discerning or in terms of what kind of music they wanted. And if you were crummy, you wouldn't get hired again. Whereas here, I mean, you know, you're not intentionally crummy, but there were mistakes. I listened to some of these old tapes, and some of them are so out of tune. I can't believe we did that. And I'm squawking. I never used to squawk. It's true. Sheesh.
0: Part of the reason why I'm doing this is what has really turned me on in the, in the past is. Is, uh, is seeing the pictures of the old jazz musicians and um, from down in the States and even in Montreal when you're talking at that time in the early 60s because I know in the 50s Montreal was like the New York of the north of oh, Canada the and the heavy um, uh, jazz the big bands and the jazz players that would come through there I'm I'm sort of trying to find on my own but I went, there's got to be and equally as rich a history up here. And that's the reason why I'm starting to go around and talk that's to these people. a very, very people. interesting
1: um, um, analogy and, and, you know, kind of using that as a stepping stone. Because there is a rich history here. It's, very, it's just very different. It's very, very, very different. You know, you brought up the Montreal in the 50s. I remember going to the Montreal, those Montreal jazz uh, festivals, because I had a lady from CBC who was a family friend, and she took me. And I was a kid. And she took me to go see J.J. Johnson and and Dave Brubeck. Okay. They were they were the greats at the time. Uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers were there. Yeah, in, and, their, yeah, in their prime. And uh, that's what it really inspired me into music. And when I saw Stan Getz, I said I gotta play the saxophone. And. That's, he was my, um, not my mentor, but he was my, what do you call it when someone's your idol? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to play like him. I wanted to play, I, I, everything I worked on was to get his sound and mm-hmm. I just loved it. And so um, mm-hmm. that's where it began at those Montreal jazz shows. And to see these guys playing live, oh my goodness. It was so neat to go to these functions. I used to go to all these commissioners' things and whatever to be to be in the same room, having a wonderful time with with everyone from, like, say, the commissioner to to the guy who pumps out your sewer tank. And everybody—they were all interdependent. It was wonderful, you know. There was everybody; everybody had a place and was important in the community. There were—I don't remember any distinctions really—and I loved that. Mm-hmm. I really did, you know. Everyone was respected, really, for for their contribution to making the place work. But um, just to conclude, uh, this this is. Are you running here? Yeah. No. Oh, you are. Well, oh, this has nothing to do with this, but it's a one to me. It's it's a very special short story. I was in Toronto with one of the designers that I met at BAMP, and she had a friend who was a singer, musician, and a fabulous keyboard player. And we met for the first time, we had dinner together at her place, and he got on our piano and he started playing, you know, and singing, he had a great voice, and he, he was so much fun. He played a tune by, by among other things, uh, a, an old Guy Lombardo tune, which you may have heard, and we had fun, it goes, boo-hoo, da-da-da-da-da, da-da, and we're singing to this, you know, and and we got talking about music, and about I told him some he asked me questions or whatever and I told him about saxophone playing and he says to me you know Alex I have two saxophones at home I'd like you to have them I've known this man for one hour hour and a half I says what? he says yeah look they're just in the closet he lived just down the street in downtown in downtown Toronto on Church Street in that area Mm -hmm. and he says I I'd I'd really like, love you to. I said, Well, what are you what are you what are you doing with them, St- Stephen? That was his name. He says, Well, my my dad passed away, and he was a saxophone player, and he left these to me. And I don't know, I just think they'd have a really good home with you. I says, Oh, I can't do this. Sean's saying to me, Let's go over and look at them. Come on. Now. So, we we went walked five minutes. we were at his place. walking to his place. Big grand piano sitting there. And he played a few more songs. Then he got these saxophones out. And one was a, a, a tenor. And then he brought this little box like this. I said, saxophone doesn't fit in there. And he opens it. And inside, this musty smell comes out. Is this silver soprano sax in a bell shape, though? It's not this kind. It's a bell-shaped soprano sax. This big. I says, holy smokes. I says, I, I know my dad would probably really want you to have these. I says, I'm not taking two of these saxophones. <laughs> Stephen, I can't, I can't do this. What, what's going on? He says, well, pick one. So I had stuff on the plane. I really like this little soprano saxophone. He says, well, take it. I said, are you sure? He says, absolutely, please. His name was Stephen Jacks. And the guy, he played and sang like, I don't know if you know, you know Peter Allen, have you ever heard Peter Allen? He, he, he's dead now, but he, he just was, a, did beautiful concerts in New York and uh, at Carnegie Hall, and he just was wild and fun, great, great singer, and just had a wonderful time on the keyboard. This was what Stephen Jackson was like. I said, well, what, this is an old saxophone, what, what did your dad play? Well, he said uh, he was the lead saxophonist with with a Guy Lombardo Orchestra. I says, "Really?" He says, "Yeah, this yeah. saxophone played New Year's Eve at the Waldorf for all Guy Lombardo's years." And so that's what I have sitting in the, in the closet down there. Guy Lombardo saxophone, beautiful. It's just a little thing, and I took it out on the lake that summer. It was a beautiful quiet evening with the sun setting down a little bit there. Just just past that uh, And there's a bay there and I took it out and I started playing. I didn't play a song. I just ran some nonsense scales, you know, with notes not making Yeah, it was not a soul and it would echo in that bay and it came back to me. And suddenly a loon goes, hoo 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 I looked, and from here to that, well, twice as far away as that cabinet, there's a loon. And I went, do 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 and it talked to me, and it came back. Then it was joined by a second loon, and this dialogue between this little saxophone and these two loons that went on for about 20 minutes, I would just go, do 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 just something, and they would they would do something back, and then they'd dive down. And come back up, and this would all—I I was like, it was like a dream. It was magical, and uh, it was a time when I was healing uh, from various things, and 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 uh, um, so it was like, uh, it was like a, it was like spirit, very spiritual to me. At any rate, I uh, played some blast notes. I remember, and I'm just sitting on a rock, and Carol's just sitting there watching all this, and the sun setting. Dead calm, glass on the lake, and these two loons and the saxophone having this chat—silly, S- fun things—and I finished. I went doo 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 doo, and they went
2: doo doo doo
1: They made some funny noises, and both dove, and I never saw them again. We finished. That was it. Wow. Yeah. So of course I am. Um, I. I. Uh, <clears throat> told that story to Stephen and to Sean and, but I, I had saxophones out there before that had never happened this <laughs> little guy on part of saxophone from his dad who died <clears throat> he gave it to me, a total stranger after knowing him for a little over an hour he just <sighs> that's amazing, That's <laughs> a beautiful nice story. story yeah, beautiful story yeah, and I've never taken it out again that was it. That's true. I never took that sax, but that one night I had it with me and I started tooting
0: on it. <laughs> thank you, sir. I'll
1: thank you. That. It was great. It was yeah. a
0: I would like to thank Alex for sharing his rich musical life story with Musicians of the Midnight Sun. To hear more, see photographs of his life and the full interview transcript, check out musiciansofthemidnightsun.com, linked in the show notes. You can follow along as well on Facebook and Instagram. If you would like to support the continuation of this project, please donate it on our website, MusiciansAtTheMidnightSun.com. I would like to thank the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee and the Northwest Territories Creative Industries Economic Recovery Fund for supporting this podcast series. And to thank the Northwest Territories Arts Council, Government of the Northwest Territories Department of Education, Culture and Employment, the Yellowknife Community Foundation, and the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee for supporting the website so far. A full list of supporters can be found on the website. The archival audio of this podcast is from the Northern Musicians Project Collection at the Northwest Territories Archives. I'm Pat Brayton. Thanks for listening.